You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk to brilliant, diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. Today, I chat with Monique Wonderly. Monique is an assistant professor of philosophy at the University of California, San Diego. Her research interests are implied ethics and philosophy of emotions. A former Harold T. Shapiro postdoctoral research associate in bioethics at the Princeton University Center for Human Values, Monique has written on such topics as love, attachment, and agency. In this episode, we talk about the nature of grief, its connection to attachment, does it make sense to grieve for a celebrity, and so much more. Hello, Monique, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. How are you today? Hi, Maisha. I'm doing pretty well, all things considered. How all about you? <laughs> I'm doing well, thank you. So let me let me begin first with asking you the opening question here. How did you get interested in philosophy? Oh, okay. So, well, all throughout high school, I was actually interested in the natural sciences, and I actually planned to go into medical research. And the summer after my senior year of high school, I got the opportunity to participate in this six-week science studies program at the Wiseman Institute of Science in Rehovot, Israel. That was my first time uh, leaving the country. It was it was pretty cool. But while there, our group visited the Yad Vashem Holocaust Museum. And uh, I was very deeply affected by that. And the group of us, something like 60 or 70 students, um, sat on a lawn and had this really uh, great discussion. And I started to realize there's so much that I didn't know how to explain, but wanted to understand. And something just clicked. And from then on, my interest largely shifted to the humanities and social sciences. And I ended up double majoring in philosophy and psychology at the University of Michigan. That's, that's interesting that the combination of the two, how did you, how did you see the two going together or did you see them going together or did you take them as like two separate kind of disciplines that you were just interested in or drawn to? Philosophy and psychology. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So I guess um, so they're very closely connected for me. I mean, and thinking about in order to understand ideas, uh, the kind of ideas that philosophy helps you to uh, explain gives you equips you with the vocabulary and knowledge to explore. I mean, uh, most of the ideas that I was interested in had to do with our psychological orientations toward things. So I'm very interested in the philosophy of emotion. I'm interested in philosophy of psychopathology. And so there you see the intersection uh, runs very deep. So I'm, I'm very excited to have this conversation with you. I, like I said before, the press record, I, as a human being, I've had experiences with grief, whether that was kind of the, I guess you say, the metaphorical loss of someone, um, and then also the loss of someone kind of physically through death. And so there's been, there's been a lot of questions that I've been thinking of, and I'm glad that I get to talk to someone who's an expert at these matters. <laughs> so thank you. So, so, so before, we, before we transition into grief proper, let's talk about attachment. So, so what does it mean to be attached? Well, uh, so there are a lot of things that one might mean by being attached. I guess in everyday language, uh, we often use attachment as something like an umbrella term for 
just any kind of emotional connectedness. Like you might say you're attached to your favorite TV show um, because you're very fond of it and you'd be disappointed if you couldn't watch it anymore. Uh, my work is uh, deeply influenced by um, developmental and clinical psychology, where in what is referred to as attachment theory, uh, the focus is on the bond between infants and their primary caregivers. And this kind of attachment, uh, so the infant uh, seeks physical proximity to the primary caregiver, protests separation um, by crying and clinging. Um, the primary caregiver serves as a secure base, right? So the infant feels more comfortable exploring new environments in a safe haven. Uh, so that's who the infant turns to in time of distress. So this is where the research sort of began, but psychologists have extended this, noticing that in adulthood, most long-term romantic pair bonds have uh, some features like these and are considered attachments as well. And this, I think this is my starting point, although my conception of attachment is, is broader still. So, so you use the example of the, 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 the mother and the child or the parent and the child. And we can, I mean, I can see right. how, hey, it's, you know, that kind of relationship, attachment is so, so relevant and so, so important. Um, but I wonder it, what your thinking is on this matter, what has been the research on this matter about, about attachments in adulthood. So someone might think, I can understand that as a child to a parent. Mm-hmm. But if one is attached, quote unquote, as, you know, as an adult to another person, it seems infantile. Right. So, so what, do you, what do you think about that? Yeah. So a lot of, right. A lot, I mean, I, that, I think that's a, a reasonable kind of view. If you take a certain, if you adopt a certain perspective on attachment, right, there does seem to be something a bit uh, infantile about it, particularly because it seems like, well, I mean, the infant needs the primary caregiver for purposes of uh, restoring and maintaining uh, security. And that seems to be something that seems odd for adults to seek out other adults for. But uh, I think when you look at the set of uh, attachment behaviors, I do think we see something like this in adulthood uh, and where it's actually meaningful and can contribute to the kind of romantic love that we have toward our partners. So for example, so just looking at these base behaviors uh, that are pointed out. So we do seek proximity to our romantic partners and we do uh, tend to protest when they leave, not by necessarily, you know, <laughs> having tantrums, right, right. If, we're, if we're at all mature. But, but we feel this um, uh, and, and we respond emotionally uh, to them leaving and often by things, doing things like crying. But I think may, maybe even a bit more interestingly, this idea of uh, your partner serving as or, or an adult in your life serving as a secure base and a safe haven. These are very special roles to play. So if you feel more confident going out and taking on new experiences and you feel more empowered uh, when you're with a certain person, that's pretty meaningful. And when there's a particular person who you tend to turn to in times of distress and we're all you know, kind of feeling uh, lots of feelings right now, I'm guessing, <laughs> but the, the person who you turn to the most, that does seem like a very special kind of bond. And when the fact that it's a two-way kind of street in most of these relationships, right? It's not just one adult is attached to the other. In most good functional relationships, at least, they're both attached to one another. Whereas in attachment theory, most of the time, uh, it's about the infant being attached to the primary caregiver. But the pr- primary caregiver isn't generally attached in the same way to the infant, right? You don't want to use your, your child as a secure base or a safe haven for you. That seems problematic for lots of reasons. but. Uh, in adulthood, I mean, this actually makes sense. And 
the, the sense of security implicated here really seems to increase trust and the strength of the bond. Is this, is what, you, is this what you refer to as security-based attachment? So security-based attachment uh, is a particular notion that I use. It certainly seems like the kind of relation that's being talked about in attachment theory is something like a security-based attachment. Uh, so security is a focus. So the way that I conceive of security-based attachment, there's uh, some, some overlap, but a bit of divergence from the traditional psychological conceptions. So I think of it as a recurrent desire for engagement with an object or an activity, uh, such that the relevant kind of engagement or lack thereof affects one's sense of security. And the notion of security that I'm working with is a kind of confidence in how one feels about oneself and is able to get out of the world. So you might say without our attachment objects, we tend to feel out of sorts, off kilter, no longer all of a piece, right? Uh, and so forth. And engagement with them helps us feel more grounded, empowered, these sorts of things. Uh, so that's kind of that, that capsule version. So it's not just security in the sense of uh, safety that you might think of with the infant primary caregiver bond, but a kind of orientation and groundedness in the world. Can you, can you give us some, some detailed examples of this kind of relationship or kinds of relationships that will have this kind of attachment? Yeah, absolutely. So I think for the majority of us, um, the most significant attachments that we have are to other people. So you might have your closest friend or your partner or a relative that you're close to. Um, you can think here of this person with whom you can't wait to share new things, with whom you feel a bit more at ease and like yourself when you're with them, without whom you feel not just sad, but at least a little disoriented. I mean, if you were apart for prolonged periods. But, you know, I, I actually think we can have a similar orientation toward objects and activities. So on my view, you can be attached to an activity like running or even to ideas uh, like the idea of infinity. So, you know, something like this. Yeah, but one of the most important aspects of it, of attachment, is you take uh, the object to be non-substitutable. Uh, for you. So, yeah. so, so they're irreplaceable in the words of Beyonce. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't, doesn't Beyonce just always get these things? Yeah. <laughs> she always gets it right. We, 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 she always we, gets we, it we, right. The philosophy of Beyonce. Eh. So, so, so what you're describing, it, some might say that what you're describing, Monique, is, is caring. Is, is there some similarities between attachment and caring? Is, is there a difference between these two things? Excellent question. Yeah. I, so caring is another one of those terms that we use in all sorts of ways, especially in everyday language, right? Just to indicate, uh, sometimes we use caring just to indicate that something matters to us. But philosophers who work on caring often employ this particular notion of caring, where it's a type of psychological orientation uh, toward an object that involves a desire for the object of care to flourish and an emotional vulnerability to how it's faring. So if I care about you, I want you to do well or to thrive. And I'm disposed to feeling upset, down, worried, um, these kinds of things. When you're doing poorly, I'm disposed to feel happy uh, when you're doing well or thriving. So that's one way of talking about caring. Uh, and caring, unlike uh, what I refer to as security-based attachment, doesn't uh, necessarily involve any connection between the object and the carer's sense of security. And also, I mean... Caring about another person or object is typically viewed as an other regarding attitude, unless you're talking about caring about yourself. And in fact, caring, at least as we often employ the term, seems to focus 
um, the good of the cared for object just for that object's own sake. And security-based attachment, of course, takes another as its object, but uh, it does have a very substantial self-focused dimension. So it's a, it's a felt need for another person or object. And so while it's natural to talk about caring about a person or object for its own sake, when we talk about people and objects that we need, well, we need them for our sakes. So I think some of our closest relationships manifest both caring and security-based attachment, but I also think it is possible for them to come completely apart. So I can be attached to someone uh, without caring, and I can care about someone without being attached. Mm -hmm. So let's now transition to grief. Describe for us, and it may sound strange to even ask this question because people may say, well, I've experienced grief. I know what it is. It's painful. <laughs> but, but philosophically speaking, uh, describe for us grief. And, and can you talk about its components sure. as well as its, as its varieties? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so uh, one way to think about grief is as uh, a response to an irrevocable loss of something or someone was very important to the griever. Uh, so oftentimes we think of grief as a response to the death of a loved one. But as you uh, pointed out earlier, I mean, there are other contexts in which it makes sense to construe something or someone is permanently lost where they're not necessarily dead, but there's a certain sort of change uh, where there's a, a different kind of loss that will affect you and make sense to be the object of grief. Uh, and this comes with characteristics like negative affects or emotions like sadness. And of course, most people are familiar with that aspect of it, but more sophisticated views recognize other emotional components, sometimes fear, confusion, a lot of different sorts of emotions. And on many views, grief is marked by certain kinds of desires. So like the desire that the object not be lost is a necessary part of grief for some, uh, dispositions to behave in certain ways, uh, like certain engaging in certain searching behaviors, attempts to connect the lost person or object, so on and so forth. So there's a, a nice package of um, emotions, behaviors, motivations when we think about what grief is. So it's actually pretty complex. Yeah, of course, you know, it, it, I, I wouldn't be a moral psychologist if I didn't ask you about the aptness of the emotion <laughs> itself. So I, I, wanna, I wonder if you can, can share with us, at least according to the standard view, when is grief considered appropriate? Yeah, great. So. One of the most important conditions, I think, uh, for grief's appropriateness that we find in the literature is that the griever have stood in a particular kind of relation to the lost person or object, right? So for simplicity's sake, let's just say we're talking about the death of a person. So you can imagine uh, a person going to the funeral of a stranger, say, and breaking down, sobbing, being, you know, beside himself or herself, you know, uh, with what appears to be grief. You would imagine in this case, those who were actually close to the deceased person might be reasonably offended, right? Because their friend or relative's death doesn't seem like this stranger's loss to grief, right? It's not their loss to grief. So there has to be some kind of pre-existing connectedness to warrant grief. But exactly what that is, 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 a, bit, is a bit nebulous. It's a bit hazy. It's not clear. Um, so something stronger than liking, you know, uh, we often talk about grief being appropriate for the loss of loved ones. But maybe love is a bit too strong. Mm. Uh, so I'd say that on many standard views of grief, uh, the implication seems to be something like, well, you must have cared about the person in the sort of you know, rich sense that I described earlier. Mm -hmm. 
So that's the that's the standard view. Okay, how does your account of security based attachment respond to this standard picture? So I think uh, what my picture does is help to distinguish uh, different varieties of grief. So because I think that carrying an attachment can come apart, uh, we can kind of look at the trajectories of grief that respond to the loss of a cared for object versus the loss of a attachment object. And again, oftentimes these will go together, but not always. But here's what I have in mind. So recall that caring about an object, when you care about an object or a person, your focus is on that person's well-being, right? So that's the focus there uh, and they're flourishing. So uh, when an object that I care about dies, right, I'm going to feel certain kind of painful emotions because of their plight, because of something that's happened to them. It's very other focused. And insofar as you think you can possibly benefit uh, a person who is who has died, maybe by completing their projects or contributing to causes they care about, it makes sense to be motivated to do these sorts of things. And again, your emotions uh, are very focused on um, what has happened to them in their plight. But so I think that that happens quite often. But there's also this different sort of orientation when you're attached. There's a self-focus type of response that seems to implicate one sense of security, right? In the sense that I mentioned before. Um, so something you need or someone you need is now gone and your thoughts and feelings are centered on your loss, too, you know, and this makes sense of feeling confused, frightened, a kind of ungroundedness or disorientation that many people seem to experience. And these seem to be important features of losing an attachment figure. Uh, so oftentimes they'll go together, right? We, when we love a person, oftentimes we're both attached to and care about them for their own sake. And you'll experience this package together, uh, but they can't come apart. And I think these different, uh, these different sorts of, of, of orientations track different sorts of connectedness to the object, right? Or the person uh, who's lost in this case. So I want to make things very messy. However, okay. <laughs> however, however, in, in making it messy, I think we're going to clean some things up. So okay. a few weeks ago, a few months ago, Kobe Bryant passed away and not just him, his daughter and, and several others in a plane. And I remember being at the gym and everybody at the gym on a Sunday is hearing the news and we are weeping in the gym. Right. It took everything within me. I'm a basketball fan. It took everything within me to like not leave the gym. Right. And, right. and I can recall that experience with a whole a bunch of experiences other of other celebrities who passed away. When Whitney Houston passed away, you know, Michael Jackson passed away, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It seems as if on the standard view, as far as caring, that helps explain our grief, right? And, and basically what I'm referring to is, is people grieving over celebrity. This is someone that one did not know. It seems as if the caring picture describes or helps explain um, our grief. And I'm trying to imagine, and I wonder if you can help me here, how does a security-based attachment, how does, how does your view help explain why people grieve over the death of a celebrity? And, and why is it an apt response if you still think it is an apt response in this regard in relationship to your account? Good. Okay. So, yeah, this is, yeah, this is a, a question that will uh, uh, be a bit messy. <laughs> but, but you're right. I think, I think it's, a, it's a helpful sort of question to explore here. So I think it's actually complicated both when it comes to caring and attachment. So when you say caring seems to make sense of why um, people grieved who, who never met Kobe Bryant, who, who grieved his, uh, over his death. So it's, it's not entirely clear to me 
that there are, uh, for most people anyway, who, who've never met Kobe Bryant, that there are these kind of stable dispositions to desire to promote his well-being in some way or to desire that he fare well and uh, a, a stable kind of emotional vulnerability to how he's faring. Usually you don't know how he's really faring, right? We just see some, we learn things every now and then, you know, by watching TV or listening to the radio or something like this. But so if you're um, really concerned uh, with his flourishing, then it makes sense to grieve in the caring sense, right? So, I mean, that definitely does make sense. I feel like security-based attachment also might make sense. And here's why. Uh, And I think it actually might be similar, at least similar to some extent, with how we might make sense of of, um, having cared about him too. So I, I wanted to express a bit of, a bit of doubt over whether or not, you know, people who grieve for Kobe, Kobe Bryant, who never met him actually cared. Okay. Uh, right. <laughs> well, okay. cared about him, right. Cared about him. But uh, oftentimes with celebrities, they tend to take on a certain meaning for us. We don't really know them. Right. But they, they can uh, take on a certain kind of meaning for us that does really matter to us, like our conception of them uh, and these sorts of things. And so maybe that's what's going on there, what, what Kobe Bryant symbolized to a lot of people. But in that same thing, some people could be attached, at least theoretically. I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure how I come down on this. I, you've given me a lot to think about here. But you could imagine someone being very attached to the idea of Kobe Bryant kind of building you know, building uh, certain mental frameworks around Kobe and tracking how he's doing, you know, try, trying to to track how, I don't know, the, the various things that he's engaged with, trying to be closer to him in various ways, where if you couldn't do that anymore, if you couldn't watch Kobe Bryant play basketball, or if you couldn't keep up with him in the news, you'd feel the sense of dis- disorientation. Um, you'd feel like you were a little bit off kilter, like there's something wrong for you if you couldn't maintain this kind of engagement again with what he symbolizes because you can't really directly engage with him. So there's a, there's a sense in which it might be somewhat similar to how caring might explain what's going on. It might not be a caring about the person per se, but you don't really know, but it might be caring about this kind of meaning uh, that he's imbued your life with. Um, but you can also be attached in that way too. But I think what'll matter here are the kinds of responses that you have Right. So the death of every person uh, that we care about doesn't affect our sense of security and how we're able to get on in the world. Right. Uh, but, so, but it may. It may. I mean, some people might be off kilter for a while. Uh, I think the deaths of Martin Luther King and John F. Kennedy, for example, I think uh, some people really were, you know, attached uh, to those figures for what they meant and what they symbolized, even if you didn't know them. I'm going to I'm going to throw out some a a couple of phrases that we use probably without thinking around grief. And I wonder I wonder what you have to say about them. All right. So how do you feel about the the adage? You know, you need to grieve. (laughs) (laughs) I I, so I'm actually a fan of of that way of thinking. Okay, I think oftentimes we do need to grieve. Part of what happens when someone you care about very much, someone you love, someone who has come to 
I don't know, uh, constitute a, a part of your identity in a way. I mean, I think this happens to us sometimes. You really need to do a lot of reorienting when that person is lost to you. And so part of grieving is kind of going through this breakdown, uh, this experience of really feeling the disorientation and really inhabiting the significance of the loss and what this person has meant to you. And sometimes by doing that, that will actually help you put yourself back together, so to speak, uh, and to move on and sometimes stronger than you were. And one interesting thing about attachment that I think is particularly useful um, for explaining this kind of phenomenon is that part of what happens in a close attachment bond between two people, they help to, the other person helps to instill in you a sense of strength. They help to, they affect how you see yourself and uh, how you're able to get on uh, and get past traumatic events and challenges. And this can survive even their own loss, right? And so ironically, sometimes it's because of the bond and the very important bond that we had with someone who's lost that we're actually able to get over them uh, more successfully than we would otherwise be uh, because of the impact that they had on us. And so their fingerprints are kind of uh, on the the rebuilding of our lives. Mm -hmm. I like that. I like that. Okay, here's another one. Okay. You know, it, it, it... It gets better with time. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that one is is hard. I mean, there's a sense in which it's it's similar to the one before. Right. Maybe you need to grieve because uh, there's a sense in which you need to move on and rebuild. But it's not clear to me when grieving processes really end. Right. Uh, So grief doesn't seem to be just the sort of instantaneous kind of experience. This is one of those emotional processes that are often long and drawn out. And it's not clear to me what exactly, I think there's a, there's going to be some clear end point for grief at which things are all of a sudden better. But I do think that uh, you can still be in the process of grieving and, and rebuilding and reorienting over a very long period of time. And to that extent, I, I can see things going well and getting better with time. It seems like for most of us, that is what happens, right? Things, things get better in some ways, but, you know, the, the significance of the loss uh, still lingers, but maybe now it's tinged with some other things. So there's still going to be some sadness, but um, maybe you're able to remember uh, the happier times a bit more often. Uh, maybe the memories take a different, take on a different character. You can smile a little bit more when thinking about the person instead of just feeling uh, the significance of their loss in a negative or painful way. I will never forget this story. One of my my coworkers, I remember him telling me his mother had passed away probably that week. And so he tells me about another coworker coming to him and him expressing to her that his mother had passed away. And he says to her, or she says to him, you know, I understand because when Michael Jackson died, dot, 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 right? Oh, wow. Okay. All right. Let's Let's put that under... Top things that you shouldn't say to a grieving person. Right, right. Can you add something to that list? <laughs> can you add, I mean, sometimes it can be hard. I mean, when people, add, you know, when you're responding to a friend who've lost a, a loved one, it, it's really hard to try to figure out what to say. And, mm-hmm. and, I, and I wonder if, if I can um, ask you to, to at least provide for us what not to say. Maybe that can be a good starting point. <laughs> well, I, def- I definitely like the Michael Jackson comment as as a uh, as something that you don't say. <laughs> so 
with regard to it'll get better in time. Um, so since since you brought that one up, I think that's something that you probably shouldn't say. Sometimes sometimes it's important to us to really experience a loss and the idea that you know you'll feel differently about this later on isn't always comforting. So I had a um, teacher that I was very very close to in the sixth grade. Uh, so we did a lot of things together. Um, she, I mean, I, uh, I had lots of things going on when I was a kid. And so teachers and mentors were very, very important for me. And I was particularly close to this teacher and um, we had to move away. Uh, so we were in Phoenix and we moved to Detroit. And I remember her saying, you know, Monique, I know you're really sad now, but um, you know, you're going to feel so much differently later on. Uh, it's it's just not going to hurt so bad. And I said, I know, I know, um, but that's what's going to make it hurt. That, that that makes it hurt even worse now, right? Knowing, uh, because that seems to be a sad thing, right? When your your memories change and you don't feel the loss in the same way. So I think that's actually a good example of something not to say. I mean, when people are grieving, they're I feel like there's no magic words that you can say to help them out. I mean, I would just convey that I care about you and I'm here. And that's that might be the best that you can offer. I mean, that, that leads me to also um, I wonder what you have to, to, to briefly say about this. I we, we've been in the background kind of suggesting that there there are varieties of grief. Right. And so someone can respond to the death of a loved one, but also can someone can respond to a changed relationship or a relationship is no longer there or the person is still living. And right. one might one might consider that the the, the first example. Right. It's like the real grief. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. That's the real painful thing. And if you can't get over the second thing. Right. You know, mm-hmm. that's that's your problem or or the pain that is experienced um, in the latter example is incomparable. And so we may have less sympathy. And I wonder I wonder if you could give us a, a, a more sympathetic view to those experiences or, or to that or to that response. Absolutely. Yeah, I think there's lots of events where we experience the loss, uh, something where it's not necessarily the death of a person, but it could be the loss of a relationship where you construe that relationship as permanently lost to you, it's changed or um, lost in some way where it can, it can never be the same again. And where this was really an important, important sort of relationship for your, for your identity, for how you felt about yourself and for how you're able to get on in the world and these sorts of things. And it makes a lot of sense there. I mean, we all experience different losses differently and there's a kind of significance that you have when a person has died, right? I mean, this is something that uh, seems in, in most cases very bad for them. I suppose in some cases they might end up better off depending on uh, how things were before. But in the case of losing a, a relationship that, that you've sort of built your life around, or at least a large part of your life around, that seems very significant. Uh, so I don't think that we should restrict uh, our, our conception of appropriate grief to the death of a person. I think you can lose a person in all sorts of ways. And also, I think there are things besides losses of persons that can evoke grief and we should be very sympathetic to. So, I mean, when people are forced to leave their homes, as happens in a lot of cases, you can be very attached to your home. You can grieve that loss, having to leave your homeland, having to leave where you raised your family. Uh, That can really affect you in these deep and lasting ways. And so I think 
again, I think attachment really helps with this sort of thing, helps us to explain how some things we become connected to and develop this felt need for and this really rich sense. Then it makes a lot of sense to be disoriented, off kilter, in addition to just being sad without it. So, yeah, I think we should be sympathetic to these other kinds of losses. Do you think there's 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 something that actually exists called good grief? <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I think that it, insofar as grief can give you the opportunity to recognize the significance of what has been lost. And that means the significance of that uh, person or object for you. Sometimes, so you know, the old uh, the old saying, you don't know what you have till it's gone. Right. That happens quite a bit. And in the case of grief, sometimes we're surprised by the impact that the loss of another uh, person or object has on us. And I think there's something special and important about recognizing that significance. And again, really kind of inhabiting it and going through the emotional processes by which you sort of reconstruct your, your sense of self and your orientation in the world. And so there's something very good uh, about that, um, even while it's painful. Uh, it still can be very constructive. So, yeah, I think I think we can think of grief as uh, overall a good but painful thing. Given your research project, your your work leads you to consult work from other fields. And I wonder, I know you touched on this a little bit when you were talking about psychology and philosophy, but I wonder how has interdisciplinary study informed your work? And, and do you think interdisciplinary study only benefits a few disciplines, particularly the humanities, or can it help in, in any intellectual project? And I think one of the things that motivate the second question, just to give you some context, is that usually when we think about interdisciplinary work, we are really referring to people working in the humanities, consulting other people in the humanities. And then I wonder, since you, you know, thought you were going to go into medical science, and I, <laughs> right. I wonder what can be said about those, those, ent- those entities as well. Oh, great. Uh, wonderful question. So, right. I mean, right. As we discussed earlier, I do uh, my work and my work, I draw on uh, developmental and clinical psychology quite a bit. Uh, and because I work on the philosophy of emotion more broadly, uh, I do. Uh, and also the philosophy of psychopathology. So my work is also deeply informed, uh, not just by psychology, but also by neuroscience. I mean, you want to know what's going on uh, with the brain uh, when people are experiencing certain sorts of emotions and emotional processes, certain kinds of psychopathology, especially those related to attachments, since that's what my work centers on. So I've studied, let's see, psychopathy, addiction, other forms of psychopathology as well. And so in order to do those well, you have to know something about psychology and neuroscience. And I feel like so you didn't you don't just didn't just rely on intuitions, Monique. I mean, yeah. what's wrong with intuitions? I'm saying, <laughs> <laughs> right? It, you know, it is. It's it's a funny thing that yeah, a, a lot of people feel like well, you know, the more the, the greater the connection between empirical research and the empirical literature and your philosophical project, somehow your project is the worst for it. But I, I think that. It, Fortunately, it's becoming a pretty outdated way uh, of thinking about how to do philosophy well. I mean, if, if nothing else, and, and I think and this speaks to uh, your, your second question, like how does interdisciplinary study help intellectual projects more broadly? And I feel like delving into other areas really can broaden 
you know, our perspectives, equipping us with uh, a richer vocabulary, a new set of questions from which to explore the topic. Uh, so it can be really refreshing uh, to come at things from different directions just to see what other people are doing. I mean, I think uh, it really, really expands the, you know, locus of ideas uh, that we can draw on. Uh, and I think it just makes work richer and more powerful. And I'm excited uh, when my work makes connections with the real world. I mean, that's something that <laughs> something that is interesting for me. And I know for you as well. So, and in that way, I feel like scientific research can be very helpful. And I also feel like the, you know, natural and social sciences can also benefit from engagement with philosophy. Um, so I think it's a two-way streak. Okay, so I'm about to go way back, right? Okay. Like way, 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 way back. Can, can you talk about your experience as an academic enrichment specialist in Grand Rapids Public School System? Oh. And, and, and I want to know, know, how did that, that shape you as, as a person and also as a teacher? So directly uh, after I got my bachelor's degrees from the University of Michigan, I became employed as an academic enrichment specialist uh, for Grand Rapids Public Schools. And the reason why this happened is because when I was in high school, I uh, was a part of this activity called Academic Games, uh, and it was a great activity. It's like a, a combination of uh, quiz bowl and chess. So uh, nerdy, Monique. So, so nerdy. <laughs> so nerdy. But go ahead. It, it was great. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we, we played games where you make moves on a board with cubes. You have goals and you... Uh, solve them using sophisticated mathematics, their language arts games, the social studies games <laughs> as well, uh, and logic games. And so it was just a really great experience. And we would go out and compete. Um, and so I, I love doing it. And I volunteered as a coach when I was in college. And then a person who created some of the games, Layman Allen, uh, he was uh, Building, so he he was a law professor at the University of Michigan, and he was actually helping to start a new program in Grand Rapids. And so he asked, he contacted me uh, and said, you know, would you like to be a part of this? Uh, we want to actually bring academic games to the school system, and not only have people who coach and take these students out to compete, but who actually use it as an instructional tool in the classroom. And so uh, I ended up teaching uh, grades six through twelve. I would come in the classes. We do. We we'd cover all this uh, advanced uh, academic material and uh, they would learn through this gaming format, uh, which was really helpful uh, for a lot of students. It was very motivating. And so I also had teams and I was very proud of my teams. Uh, so uh, we went competing nationally and my teams won over uh, a dozen national championships. Ooh, OK, they were great. They were great. <laughs> Uh, so it was a really, it was really uh, a, a wonderful experience. And the way that it shaped my, uh, my instruction is just learning how to, so academic games was about creative problem solving and critical thinking and, and sort of building these skills and uh, helping students learn these sophisticated concepts through this very new format, this kind of gaming format. And so I take this with me when I teach. I, it gives me, uh, see, how, how would I put it? I mean, it equips me with a different uh, tool set, a different tool set with which to teach them. So I know that people learn differently and I'm able to respond 
by trying to meet their individual needs in better ways, I think, because I taught academic games and had to teach large classrooms uh, of people these sophisticated concepts. And they all had sort of different things that they responded to uh, about the games. And although I don't use games in teaching uh, philosophy, uh, I do have to use a lot of different kinds of instructional tools in order to reach as many students as I can. And academic games has been really helpful uh, for that. Hmm. Okay, last question. What has been your favorite thing to do during quarantine? <laughs> um, don't play, don't say nerd games. <laughs> I'm just playing, I'm just playing. No, no, that was that. <laughs> I, I deserved it. I deserved it. Um, <laughs> a matter of fact, I want you to teach me some next time we see each other. Just, be, just off the record. <laughs> I would love to. It looks like someone else is kind of nerdy too. I'm you know, saying. it is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> just saying. Um, actually, it's been, I, you know, I haven't had a lot of time to do much else but adapt to the, these new instruction platforms. Right. So that's your um, favorite thing. Monique? No, 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 I'm sorry. It's not. So my, my favorite thing, my favorite thing uh, is actually to go for walks. So I, I've always like going. So you've been outside. You're, you're giving yourself away. You've been outside. You need to stay at home, Monique. I, well, I mean, I think, but I, I thought part of the stay at home order was you still get to go out for okay, walks. Okay, okay. They want you to get a little bit of, a little bit of exercise. Okay. And um, there's something uh, really interesting about going for a walk when there's hardly any traffic out, right? Something kind of eerie and, and really kind of cool about it. But I, I really, I mean, I need to get out of the house. I can't stay just stuck in uh, all the time. But I'm very careful. I'm very careful <laughs> when I leave. I, 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 you know, follow follow the six feet rules and all that. But I do, I do love to to go for walks. I take my recorder with me and I try and work out some philosophical problems and um, get some exercise and some fresh air. But I, I guess that's my my favorite thing to do when I get a chance to do it. Nice, nice. Monique, thank you so much for this conversation. I'm so glad we finally get to have it. <laughs> thank so you. So happy. I'm a big fan. <laughs> thank you so much. Well, I'm a, I'm a big fan of you. So thank you so oh. much for making yourself available, particularly during this time of uncertainty, to think through these ideas. I, I, I know it's difficult, but thank you so much for taking the time out. And I, and I learned a lot. And I, I'm sure uh, this isn't going to be, and is, will be, has been a benefit to listen. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Stay safe and healthy. Right. You too. You too. <laughs> stay home. Hashtag stay home. <laughs> For more access to the Unmute Podcast, subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co. There you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, speak. The world will be different as a result.